Good to see everybody. My name is Robert, one of your pastors here at Redemption Hill, and uh, so glad to celebrate this this Lord's Day with you. Such beautiful weather. I really wish there was a way we could kind of just move everything right outside, right over there, and enjoy this. Like we need to talk the school or the city into building like a, a band shell here for Holton, so that we can go out there and enjoy it. Stunning day. Um, good to see you. Um, let's get started. How about that? No big announcements for you today. If you're new with us, we talked last week about a new series that we're beginning uh, where we're going to take 52 weeks starting this week, and we are going to work our way through the entire Bible. 52 weeks through all 66 books. Don't try to do math on that. Um, Some of you are worried that we're not going to make it. Uh, I'm probably not going to be too encouraging this morning by how far we get, but I promise you (laughs) there there are plans for us to make it through the entire Bible uh, in a year. And and last week we called it our prologue, kind of the introduction to the story, the introduction to the series. And uh, I tried to begin by laying a a foundation for us, uh, not only about what we believe here at the church, just to help clarify some things, but a foundation to build upon as we go through the Bible, and and this was what I said. We believe, and and I, again, I can say this with a clean conscience and with a a full heart about the pastors and, and leaders here at Redemption Hill. We believe that God's word, working through God's spirit, is God's chief or primary instrument in the establishing and cultivating of God's people. God's word working through God's spirit is God's primary instrument for establishing and growing, establishing and maturing, establishing and cultivating you, cultivating God's people. And this morning, as we begin our walk through God's story of redemption, through the scriptures, with an eye towards the one story, the the one long and maybe often winding story of the entire Bible, I want to build upon that foundation and I want to build upon it this way. God's word working through God's spirit is God's primary instrument for establishing you and maturing you. And it's very important that you understand this. God's word is all about God. God's word, which working through and with God's spirit is his chief instrument in establishing and cultivating you, it's important to understand that God's word is ultimately all about God. It's his word. He not only is the author, he is the chief character in the story. The Bible ultimately is all about God. And and this is crucial Because if we really are honest about it, and I know it's hard to be honest about these types of things in church, we don't want to admit our our honesties and our realities sometimes, but if we're really honest about it, we often come to the Bible and read the Bible and, and engage in the Bible as though it's really all about me, as though it's really all about us. I mean, just think about some of the chief questions that we actually bring to the Bible when we engage with it. How does this text shape me? How do I apply this text to my life? How do I actually live out this story that I'm reading about? How can this text or what text in this Bible can make me feel better right now? Or what portion of this Bible, what story, what what verse, what text can I go to to support my opinions? I mean, if we're really honest, uh, oftentimes we engage the Bible as though it's really all about me. It's really all about us. But the Bible, God's word, is ultimately all about God. 
Some of those questions that we bring to it, they're not wrong. They're great questions. It's great to, to finally understand how a text in the Bible is applicable for our life and how we should respond to it. Those questions are good, but they're not primary. If God's word is ultimately all about God, then how I respond to it isn't the primary question. The primary question has got to be, what is God revealing to us right now about himself? In this text, in this story, in this passage, what is God revealing about himself? What's he up to? What's he doing? This is a seismic shift in perspective. It's a huge shift in perspective. In her book, In the Beginning, God, I love the way that that Marva Dawn talks about this. She said this shift is one from self-improvement One from focusing on how we can improve ourselves when we come to the Bible. What's it say about me and how I can be different and how I can please God and how I can please other people? How can I improve upon myself? It's a shift away from that and a shift to adoration, a shift to worship. It's a shift away from self-improvement, away from me. And it's a shift to adoring God for who he is and how he's revealed himself. Martin Luther, a great reformer, he said that our sin has caused us to be turned inward on ourself. Actually, his words actually say that our sin has caused us to be curved backwards. By nature, because of our sin, every single one of us is born wanting to adore ourselves, wanting to make much of ourselves wanting to focus our adoration back on ourselves. And the world around us isn't much help in fighting that. Thousands upon thousands of times a day with people and advertisements and radios and TVs and and everything around us, I'm not picking on those things, and everything around us, thousands upon thousands of times a day, each and every single one of us is nudged in greater and greater degrees towards that narcissism, towards that self-adoration, towards that focus upon ourselves and improving ourselves so that we can be respected and known and liked and appreciated and whatever it is that we're after. And I say this just to give you a perspective. How natural then would it be for us to pick up this Bible with the same self-improvement focus, thinking that everything in here is ultimately about me, how it can change me and how I'm supposed to respond to it. God's word working through God's spirit. It's his chief and primary instrument in establishing and cultivating his people and his word is ultimately about him. And we don't have to get any further than the first 10 words of the Bible to actually see this. So if you got your Bible, open it up to the book of Genesis. We're gonna start our journey. And some of you who are a little nervous about how far we'll get, I apologize. We're going to get 10 words this morning. God's word is ultimately all about God. And it's as plain as day in the first 10 words of the Bible. We don't have to go anywhere else. We can see it from the way that God has chosen to start his, his record or his revelation of who he is. And here are these 10 words. No 10 words in all of literature in all of literature have been quoted or referenced more than these 10 words. And here it is. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's important as we begin this process to understand how these 10 words how this story, how these beginning words of this story were heard by the first people who actually heard them. I think we miss this when we come to the Bible, especially when we come to Genesis and the first couple of chapters of Genesis. It's important to realize that the first audience of these words, of these 10 words, were the newly redeemed community of slaves who are now camped out on the far side of the Red Sea. This new community of people, these former slaves had just witnessed and lived through what has to be the the most glorious display of raw power that I, I think humanity may have ever seen. They had been rescued through night out of slavery from Egypt, the most powerful nation in in civilization at the time. They had been oppressed and enslaved for over 400 years and in the cover of darkness as an angel of this God had passed through and taken the life of the firstborn of those who had not responded in obedience to what he said. They were then led out of that to the sea. Imagine this, parted. They approach this body of water and it parts. Like water goes away. Like wall, I don't know what it did. I can't wait to see how that happened. But it parts. And this entire nation of people get across this sea only to turn back and to see the armies of the greatest civilization in history at that time chasing them, about to take them over. And to watch that water that had just parted, that they didn't scoop up and move, that it just parted, close back and fold those armies. And now they find themselves on the other side of this sea, free. Free. First time in over 400 years, free. And they're on the other side of the sea looking back And the question, just think, who is this God? What kind of God is like this that can toy so easily with the armies of Pharaoh? For 400 years and for years beyond, God's people had stories of God. They they knew of God. They knew of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs that we'll learn about when we go through Genesis, but they had no written revelation of him. But for the last 400 plus years, they had been oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians, only hoping on stories that had been passed down. And so here they are, free. And their questions, their questions are about what kind of God is like this. And this is, a huge perspective that we have to have when we approach Genesis, especially Genesis 1 and and Genesis 2. We have to understand how these words were heard by the first people who heard them because again, in our narcissism, in our self-worship, in our pride, we tend to come to these words and especially the first two chapters of this story with our own questions that we demand the Bible answer. And we tend to think that Genesis 1 and 2 are there to, to somehow uh, rebut the, the, the scientific advancement of the 21st century and evolutionary biology. And, and somehow we're trying to make these two chapters answer all these questions that modern science is bringing, but those aren't the questions that the Bible was written to answer. I mean, how arrogant of us 
to demand that the Bible answer these questions without understanding exactly what the Bible is saying and why it's saying it. Genesis 1 and 2 are, are definitely an argument, but they're not an argument for or against science. Michael Williams, in his great book, As Far as the Curse is Found, he, he said this. In Genesis 1, in chapter 1 and 2, Moses is seeking to break the back of the pagan gods and mythologies that have held God's people captive. God is answering questions. He's definitely answering questions in the beginning of his story. They're just not the questions that we tend to bring and demand an answer for. He's answering Israel's question on the other side of that sea. What kind of God is like this? And why us? Why why us? Who, Who is he? And why has he done what he's done? It's not about us. It's about God. His word is ultimately about himself. And so for you and I, as we come to his word, there is no greater subject for us to deal with and comprehend than to understand and deal with who is this God? What God is like this? And just as God's intention for Israel as he revealed himself to them was that they would turn back to him in adoration, in worship. He's after the exact same thing from you and I as we come to his word. A.W. Tozer, some of you may be familiar with him. Uh, He said this, and this has always shaken me to my core as I've read it. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You have to ask yourself if you really agree with that. I think he's right. I think he's right, and hopefully we'll, we'll see why, but what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship or adoration is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, just listen to what he says. I mean, you have to ask yourself if you agree with him. For this reason, the gravest question before the church, before you, is always God himself. And the most portentous, the most important fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do. Not what you say and not what you do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christian that composes the church. Now listen to how he ends this statement. Always the most revealing thing about the church, about you, about me, is our idea of God. So what has God shown us about himself in these 10 words? What has he revealed about himself in these 10 words? 
that would draw our adoration off of ourself, off of lesser things, away from us and, and onto him. Because here's my prayer and here's my hope for me and for us this morning is that as we would see how he has revealed himself and, and begun to just answer the question, what kind of God is like this? That we would stand in awe. That we would stand in awe. Just as I imagine Israel did the first time they heard these words. Ten words. Three propositions. Let's see what God actually says about himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I pray, I pray that God would be gracious enough to us that as we consider these words, we would be humbled by them and that the fruit of that humility would be for the first time or maybe the first time in a while, a right adoration, a right adoring, a right worship of him for who he is. So let's look, 10 words, three propositions. First proposition, in the beginning. What an astounding place to start a story. In the beginning. This is how God purposed to actually start his record, his self-revelation. You know, the beginning is a point in time that for us and for you and I is, is filled with mystery. When was the beginning? What was the beginning like? How long ago was the beginning? When did the beginning actually begin? But here's the thing. God chooses to reveal himself and tell his story to us, and this is how he starts. In the beginning, he's just there. He, he takes us to the beginning and he says, he's just there. No explanation, no reasoning, no need to prove cosmologically or ontologically that he exists and therefore you should believe him. No, I'm just there. This is how he chooses to begin to start. See, the issue isn't God having to prove his existence. That's not what he is trying to do. And God is not concerned in revealing himself here in Genesis 1-1 with proving to Israel or proving to you and I that he actually exists. No, he just is. He's just there. You see, Israel would have had no problem conceiving of the fact that there was a God. And they had heard the stories of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they had lived around the thousands of gods of the Egyptians. They had watched as trees were cut down and images were carved out of wood. They had been part of quarrying the stone that would build the pyramids that would house the, the dedication, the, the eternal dedication to these gods of Egypt. They had seen thousands of gods. They weren't wondering whether or not God actually existed or gods were actually real. And this is no argument about whether or not God exists. He just does. And here they are standing on the other side of the sea, free, wondering what kind of God is like this. And he says, in the beginning, me. All those gods in Egypt, you saw the beginning. You watched them cut the trees down. You watched them quarry the stones. He's arguing. He's certainly making an argument here, but his argument is against the gods they had seen. All those things you've seen, all those gods of the nations, they're not really God at all. In the beginning, me. What we see about God, what he is revealing, and what I want you to try to put yourself 
in the place of Israel standing and, and hearing this for the first time as Moses comes down with the revelation of God and begins to declare it to the people. Who is this God? Well, what is he like in the beginning? This God is, this God is eternal. He, he stood, and I don't know how else to say this. He, he stood on the, the other side of start. I don't know how else to say it. God stood on the other side of start. Moses, who, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, except for the end of Deuteronomy that records his death, because you know, he was talented, but not that talented. Um, and we'll talk about Moses writing the Bible as we, as we get through this series. But Moses also wrote a number of Psalms that you'll find in the book of Psalms. And Psalm chapter 90 is actually a prayer that Moses prayed. And Psalm 90 verse two says this. He said, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, Moses said, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As far back as you can conceive, you know, stretch your mental muscles this morning. As far back as you can conceive, there's God. He is eternal. Let me say it this way. Every single one of us, when we are born on this earth and take our first breath, we have a finite number of breaths that we will take in this life. A finite number of days that we will actually live. And I know it's hard to think about. I've got babies. A number of you have babies. You don't like to think this way, but with every breath we take and every day we live, we get closer to the day we die. That's just the nature of this. That's not true about God. That's not true of him. He has life in himself. Life is not a gift to him. He has life in himself. You and I are not like that. He is eternal. Because he is eternal, God is the only necessary being. See, there was never a time when there was absolutely nothing. You just gotta think for a minute this morning. There was never a time when there was absolutely nothing. If God is eternal, if he always has been and he always will be, then there was never a time when there was nothing because there was always God. If you think back to what we understand just from this story as we get into creation next week, the creation of the earth and there's light and there's darkness, those are things. They're not nothing. There was never a time when there was absolutely nothing because God is eternal. Everything that exists, exists because he is. But God is beyond all of those things. He's eternal. He's the only necessary being. And therefore, as Israel hears these words and he begins to, he, they begin to hear this revelation and declaration of who God is and, and what he's like, begins to dawn in your mind and in your heart, just as it did theirs, that this eternal, only necessary being is the only proper object of our faith, of our adoration. The one true, eternal, only necessary God is the only proper object of your faith, of your worship. Because he is, because he is who he is, the eternal, only necessary God, he is inescapable. God is 
inescapable. He won't die off. There will never be a time when he ceases to exist. And here's the thing, if you ignore him now, if we, if we ignore him now, we will have to deal with him in life to come. If we reject him now, we will have to face the one that we have rejected and we will come to know his eternal rejection of us then. He is eternal. God is eternal. He is the only necessary being and the only proper object of our worship, of our adoration, of our faith. And because he is eternal and the only necessary being, he is absolutely inescapable for every single one of us. We will have to deal with him. In in the beginning, God and then you get to the apex of the verse, the crescendo of the verse, the second proposition, the middle piece that kind of brings it to a head. In the beginning, God created. He created. He doesn't reveal himself by giving us a list of attributes, things he likes, things he doesn't like. I'm nice, I'm good, I'm kind, I'm just. He doesn't give us a profile. He tells us what he does. He reveals to us who he is by showing us what he does. His actions are are the proof of his character. And I want you to try to put yourself in Israel's shoes. They're standing there on the other side of the sea, looking back, having seen the armies washed over, having realized that you were free. 400 years of slavery gone, set free, being taken to a land of promise that you had heard about. And this God reveals himself to you in his word. In the beginning, for anything that was, in the beginning, me. And I created. This would have just echoed in their hearts. They just would have thundered. I'm trying to think of a good word. Thundered in their hearts of such power, of such authority. And we'll, we'll see more clearly the power and the authority of this God as he reveals himself in the rest of chapters one and, and chapter two. So this morning, we'll stay with the big E on the eye chart and just say that this eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient God, he's also all-powerful. He's also all-powerful. If you'd like a theological word to dazzle your friends with, you can say that God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. He he existed alone and yet with words. What didn't exist actually obeys him and appears. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever given any time to thinking about the fact that God exists all alone, self-sufficient, needing no one or anything else Nothing else is in existence. And he speaks, and what doesn't exist appears. Have you, have you ever given time to actually think about that? I mean, who can be compared to that? I mean, go ahead and think in your mind. Whatever power is for you, whatever, whatever symbolizes power for you, whether it's a person or a job or a company or, or, or something, whatever symbolizes power for you, think about that and think about this. 
for all of eternity, from everlasting to everlasting, Moses said, God is, he has existed. And before anything that exists came into being, he existed. And before anything came into being, nothing else was there but God and he simply spoke and nothing obeyed. You ever thought about that? How silly is our constant desire to place our faith, our hope, our, <laughs> our adoration, our worship on ourselves or on other things? Who or, or what compares to this God? Until he spoke, nothing else apart from him actually existed. And he simply speaks and it appears. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, he said, what can be known about God is plain to us, to you, to me, because God has shown it to us. Listen to what he says. How has God shown us what's plain about, how, how in the world is this plain? What has he shown us? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You and I are meant to look at the world around us, to look at that which at one point didn't exist, but in obedience to the spoken word of God came into existence. We're to look around at the creation and that's to roll up in our hearts and lives into adoration and worship for the creator. And walk by for me fresh summer honeysuckle and that smell that's burned into my brain from being a four-year-old in Georgia to walk by that honeysuckle and what's meant to roll up in my heart is adoration for the one who simply spoke and that thing came into being. He thought about that. He created that. Just think about your body the intricate symphony of organs and veins and muscles and neurons and cells and how they all work together for you to take one breath. It's meant to draw our attention off of ourselves and onto the one who simply spoke and what didn't exist came into being. But instead, we tend to get frustrated when it doesn't work the way we want it to work and grumble that certain parts of it don't appear the way we would like for them to appear. It's meant to produce worship. It's meant to produce adoration. The world around us, Paul said, God has used to make clear to us not only his divine nature, but his power. This eternal, only necessary, all sufficient God is all powerful, which means he is no mere creature. It's very cool, very trendy, and very safe these days to say that God is in everything, and in everything you can find God but there's nothing new and trendy and cool about that. 
It's been around since the time the Bible was written. It's a fancy word for it called pantheism. But it's just man's best effort at trying to distance ourselves from the reality that God is not like us. He's wholly other than us. He is no mere creature like us. And in our best efforts to not have to deal with him for who he is, the only true, eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, all-powerful God, we have to come up with ways to trivialize him, to domesticate him, to make him more like us so we can deal with him in the way that feels best to us. It's no wonder we have no awe for him. It's no wonder we have no adoration for him. Who, who can stand in awe and adore that which seems so trivial? which seems so manageable, which seems so much like me. I know how poor I am. I, what adoration is there for a God who's a lot like me? Well, Israel heard these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You better believe you understand real fast, this God is nothing like me. He is nothing like you. What difference, if we actually stood back and thought about this, what difference would it make if we come and we say that we believe that this God's word, working through his spirit, is his chief means of establishing us and maturing us and cultivating us. And he calls us together to, to be together, to make much of him, to hear his word speak and believe that his spirit is working through his word. If we really believed that about him, what would be different about the way that we gather? What would be different about our approach to the time when we believe that he speaks through his word that is his chief instrument? to establish and to change us. He is nothing like us. He's not to be trivialized. His word is not to be trivialized. He is the one true, eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, all-powerful, uncreated God. And he's not like you and he's not like me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We're gonna talk more about that next week when we look at his record of that, but here's what Israel would have heard. 10 words, one voice, ringing through their ears, echoing in their hearts, everything that exists, everything was created by God. That's what it means. The heavens and the earth, that's everything. Everything that you can conceive of was created by God. And what he's saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God alone is God. There is no rival. No one to be compared to. No one comes close to him. Everything that is was created by him and everything that is will ultimately bow down to him. In 10 words, God comes to his people as a king. Not after their agreement with what he's saying. He's not coming with words and asking his people, would you, would you like those words? Do you agree with them? Let's talk about them. Let's find some commonality here. No, God comes to them as a king. And he makes a declaration to them as a king. And as the rightful 
one true eternal king, he has every expectation and right that his people, his creation, will obey. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is your God. Who else is like this? He is the creator of all things. The one true, eternal, only necessary, all sufficient, all powerful, uncreated creator who simply spoke and what didn't exist appeared. He is the center and focus of everything. His word is ultimately all about him. But life, life is ultimately all about him. Meant to be oriented around him. Meant to be lived in adoration to him and for him. And there's nothing abstract about talking about his character and his nature. And there are massive, massive implications to how he has revealed himself to his people. And here's the thing that I love about this. Paul said that God has made it plainly clear to us in creation. He's made his divine nature and his power plainly clear to everyone who can look around and see, to everyone who takes breath. And if that wasn't enough, he actually goes further. And God actually reveals the fullness of his person, the fullness of his character, not simply in creation, but in a person. And he doesn't leave us to have to guess and to figure out who that person actually is. In the fullest revelation of the only one true, eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, all-powerful, non-created God is in his son, Jesus. The God revealed to Israel and to you and I in 10 words in Genesis 1-1 is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Just, just listen, just listen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, all-powerful. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, say all things. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, only one true, eternal, all-sufficient, preeminent, only necessary, non-created, all-powerful God. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God, all of Genesis 1-1, all of the fullness of the one true, eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, all-powerful God was pleased to dwell in him. In his own self 
declaration of who he was. Listen to what Jesus said about himself in praying to God, in God the Father in, in John 17. Jesus said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, listen to what he says. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Eternal, only necessary, all sufficient, all powerful God who in and of himself has life. He's not a creature like you and I. John 5, 26. Jesus said, for as the Father has life in himself, so he is granted that the Son have life in himself. This is your God. Behold, look, this is your God. Remember what Tozer said. The gravest question before the church, before you and I, is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man, the most important fact about you and the most important fact about me is not what we at any given time say or do, but what in our deepest heart we conceive God to be like. So just let me ask, what do you think of God this morning? What do you think of Jesus? There is no greater question. There is no greater thing to comprehend. And the most important thing about you is how you answer this question. Your eternity swings on the answer to this question. Your answer to this question is the hinge on which your eternal destiny what do you think about God this morning what do you think of Jesus Jesus said in John 17 3 here's eternal life here's eternal life that they know you the only true God only true eternal only necessary all sufficient all powerful creator God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Listen, the God of Genesis 1-1, this eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, all-powerful God, he created you. And as we'll see in a couple weeks, he created you in his image. As your creator, this is what it means, as your creator, you are bound to adore him. You are bound to adore him. But here's what I know about you just like I know about myself. I don't do it. And neither do you. You, like me, adore yourself way too much. You, like me, make much of other things. You, like me, take the adoration and the worship that is meant for our one true creator and we put it on other things that are not him, that can never be him, that can never bear the weight of our souls and the weight of our eternity. But this eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, all-powerful, holy God will say in his word later in the story that he is of pure eyes than to look upon our sin and to look upon our rebellion, and to look upon our misplaced worship. And as we'll see in his story, he has pledged to judge our sin 
eternally. This is the reality. Our sin, our misplaced worship, our, our self-adoration has placed us in great danger. Our sin has placed us in great danger. But this God, this eternal, only necessary, all-sufficient, holy, all-powerful God has chosen that through his son, the one who all things were created, in which the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell, has now made peace between you and God through his blood that he shed on the cross. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, died in your place for your sins on that cross. He died as a substitute sacrifice for your sin. And on that cross, he exhausted in his body the holy and just wrath of this eternal, all-powerful, only necessary, self-sufficient God. He exhausted the righteous wrath of God for your sin in your place. And he did that so that everyone who looks upon him and repents, who, who recognizes their sin for what it is, who calls it what it is, who recognizes their self-adoration for what it is, their narcissism for what it is, their self-worship for what it is, everyone who calls it what it is and recognizes his sacrifice in our place and turns from that to him in faith. The Bible says he through his blood has made peace with you and the eternal, all-sufficient, only necessary, holy, all-powerful God. And the Bible says that he has done this. He has done this so that all who place their faith in him are saved, saved from the just judgment and wrath of God. Saved, at peace, forgiven, Freed, not just forgiven and freed now to wander alone, but adopted into his family, called his own, his own sons, his own daughters, made absolutely new creation, old is gone, new is come. This is the promise of the one true, eternal, all-sufficient, only necessary, all-powerful God. In the beginning, God. In the end, God. From the beginning to the end, who's it all about? God. What do you think about God this morning? What do you think about Jesus this morning? Will you face him as judge through repentance and faith and then face him as your savior? Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you for 10 words. Thank you for 10 words that show us who you are. I ask that you would do what only you could do and that through the power of your spirit, you would orient our hearts away from ourselves and onto you. It's just 10 words. 10 words that change the way we live, 10 words that make us new, 10 words, Lord, 
I ask that you would produce a worship and an adoration and a delight in you because of who you are and what you've done for your glory. And as we'll see, our joy. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.